Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a pair of singer-songwriters who don't sound much alike, but who've traveled similar paths and have similar outlooks on life, and who happened to do a duet earlier this year. Frank Turner and KT Tunstall. Turner is a sort of folk-punk troubadour who's built an incredible catalog and following over the past couple of decades from his home base in England. Like his hero Tim Barry of Avail or even Billy Bragg before him, Turner infuses truly catchy songs with a punk spirit— And he's made a career buoyed by the fact that he never stops moving. He's always on tour, including a recent 50 states in 50 days run, and always making new music. Not even the pandemic could stop him, though obviously it slowed down the live performance aspect a bit. But during lockdown, Turner recorded his ninth album, a sort of back-to-basics affair called FTHC, which stands for Frank Turner Hardcore. Here's a little bit of A Wave Across a Bay from that album, which was written as a tribute to Turner's late friend, Scott Hutchison of Frightened Rabbit. I spoke with Scott last night. I was tired, but I wasn't sleeping And despite what you think, I wasn't drinking I was just finally ready to listen And he was there alright And though he'd probably kill me just for saying this Given how the both of us are atheists, there it is Also on that album is a song called Little Life, which Turner decided after recording and releasing it that he'd actually like someone else to sing on it as well. Scottish singer-songwriter K.T. Tunstall perhaps wasn't the most obvious choice, but then again, neither of these folks ever seems to make the obvious choice, and that's definitely to their credit. Tunstall's career, which stretches back to indie bands in the early 2000s, definitely started with a more mainstream-leaning trajectory, with Brit Awards and a Grammy nomination even. But like Turner, Tunstall has a restless spirit, and some big life events not too long ago led her to sell everything she owned, move to Los Angeles, and dive into the world of musicals, where she has also, unsurprisingly, found success. Just last month, she released the final chapter in a trilogy of albums that were meant to convey the themes of soul, body, and mind. This last one is called Nut, that'd be your mind, and it's great. Check out a little bit of Private Eyes from that album right here. Heads too close to the ceiling of a basement bar, you too Turner and Tunstall have a really fun chat here, covering everything from The Clash and Bruce Springsteen to the weirdness of recording a song before you've ever played it live. They talk about the touring life a lot and how that tribe of people have plenty in common, even when it seems like they might not. They come up with a great slogan for Tunstall's career, and they get into the reality of using a tour bus bathroom. Enjoy. I am at home, yeah, in Topanga Canyon. Are you on your island? I am on my island. I mean, that makes it sound like I'm the only person who lives here, <laughs> which is a beautiful idea. But uh, but there are roughly 7,999 other people who live on the island. That's still uh, entirely acceptable right. in terms of enjoyability. Yes. I. You know what? I've got a shirt that I bought in Topanga Canyon. It's a silk Hawaiian shirt. That sounds like extremely like Rick Rubin. I don't think I'd ever worn a silk item of clothing before, like actually silk. It's definitely like a decision for a guy. I just put it on. I was like, 
who are these angels caressing my skin? <laughs> like I'd literally never felt that that suddenly the whole sort of history of the silk roads and and sort of yeah. medieval nobles killing each other for the silk trade and it sort of made more sense to me. It's a completely fascinating subject. It, it is, and that's why we're here today, is to discuss... And, like, <laughs> worms make it. They do, and there was a long <laughs> history. There was a long history of people from Europe attempting to steal silkworms from China, which they eventually did successfully, but it, wow. there were hundreds of years, because they're quite delicate creatures, and yeah. pre-air travel and all the rest, it's quite a long way yeah. from... Uh, from China to the West. Imagine being imagine being a worm smuggler. Well, there was one such a thing, although they were they were not very good at it for some <laughs> time. <laughs> anyway, that's what comes to mind when I think of Tobacco Canyon. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm in a very bizarre situation of knowing that I'm not a particularly good multitasker, and now like multitasking on the most intense level that I ever have. It's bananas. In what sort of way? During lockdown, I started writing musical theatre. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, it, I, it was a surprise to me as well, because I was never like a massive musical fan. I liked musical movies. So I loved Bugsy Malone and Oliver and mm. have since like totally fallen in love with Cabaret, the movie of Liza Minnelli's Cabaret. Which I, I funnily enough, I watched for the first time about two weeks ago. And then in about six years ago, I went to see Book of Mormon mm. and it and it's the South Park guys. And it just like blew my socks off. It was so irreverent and so shocking and so funny and such good songwriting. I was like, okay, I I could definitely get down with this. I was getting to a period in my life where I needed to learn something new. I was getting a bit bored sure. and a bit frustrated. And <laughs> and so, you know, put the cosmic bat sign out that I wanted to do a musical. And sure enough, not long after that, a call came in. Would I like to write the music for the adaptation of the film Saving Grace, which was Brenda Blethyn and Craig Ferguson. Okay, yeah. And it was about this kind of this middle-aged sort of housewife who's a trophy, trophy wife and she's a great kind of botanist. She grows flowers in her garden in her greenhouse and her husband dies turns out he screwed her over for money and she just becomes a massive weed dealer right lovely in this lovely pretty little cornish village she becomes the head of a marijuana <laughs> cartel coming to london in about two weeks time and we've got the first stage performances of that musical i've never written musical theater myself but like i mean there is that thing of like let's say pre-directed writing do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I did a I did a history album a, a couple of years ago. Wow! And it was like each song was about a real historical figure. And that's amazing. What's that record called? It's called No Man's Land. Uh, oh, I remember the title. I didn't realize that that's what that album was. Yeah, and and the thing about it is, it's like it's, you know, I don't know how familiar with the back catalogue of, of Iron Maiden you are, but they famously. <laughs> I know. I know more about him flying planes probably than I do about albums. Right, I am die hard on my maiden thing. Oh, that's amazing! In the eighties, they they always had a sort of history song at the end of each album, which were and I say wow. this is a huge maiden fan, generally quite bad um, in the <laughs> sense that it was just a list of stuff that happened. The one that always made me laugh is. The song Alexander the Great features the lyric in 333 BC, he defeated King Darius again. Yeah, that's definitely Wikipedia page songwriting. So when you're writing a song about a real historical figure, obviously, first of all, you have to find your emotional hook, your your image, yeah. or whatever it is you're doing. But there were moments where it was like, right, I have to get to her second marriage by the end of verse two. 
you have to end up at point B. You can't just re- do your nice pop song trick of writing a hook and repeating it. There's a certain amount of information to convey. It was really funny, actually, that you say that, because one of the songs at the beginning of the show is sort of talking about why Port Zeith, this little Cornish village, is so kind of has such chutzpah and such spirit. And the song is about the fact that the Vikings, the Romans, the Spanish, the French, and now the Londoner second homers have all invaded, tried to take over this little village. So I was it, I was set with exactly the same predicament. I was like, so what rhymes with Julius Caesar? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a funny thing. I, for years, I never used rhyming dictionaries. And then like on that No Man's Land record, there were some moments where it was like, I, I need I need help with this. So I'd never used one for writing my own songs. I would have been screwed doing musical work without a rhyming dictionary. It's just every single thing, internal rhymes as well as end of the line rhymes. And, you know, it's it's proper like Roald Dahl, Dr. G stuff. How long did it take to write the musical? Well, I signed on to the project like six years ago and then it stalled because we got a new writer and then we got a new director. The writing process has taken three, three or four years. And the hard part of musicals is you can write the best song in the world. And if it doesn't do the job in the story, it just goes in the bin. And that's quite hard. And you learn that you can always kind of reappropriate stuff. So you're never wasting anything. But you've really got used to writing lyrics very fast and mm. really just getting it down and then letting go and being all right if the director says it's not working, we need to get rid of that. So as long as you can kind of chill out about that stuff. Which I suspect is probably not a terrible discipline to have in life anyway. No, it's, I, I, I'll tell you what, it has, I'm actually doing three musical projects now at once. Oh, wow. Which is bonkers. But it's made me so much better at organizing my work. And uh, I was just completely haphazard before. And now I'm just like, everything goes into a box. And it's definitely, it's definitely useful. I found that one of the things I realized after COVID and all of that, let's not spend ages talking about that. Yeah. But like the whole, you know, I, I sort of made a record during all the lockdowns. And then there's always a delay between finishing a record and it getting released. You and I know yeah, as well. Course. And in the past, I found I've been really stressed about it. And I've regarded it as like a thing that could be chipped away at through kind of brute agitation do you know what I mean and just (laughs) lots of angry emails come on (laughs) and like I found this time around I was so zen about it it was just like yeah I finished it I know it's good oh I'm so happy to hear that I felt exactly the same way I made mine in lockdown as well remotely I did all the demos sent them over to Martin Treff in London and then had like two weeks of singing on the record to the point where some of these songs I never ever played them yeah it was just bonkers I'd written the lyrics to a recorded guitar part and I'd actually never sat and played it. And I just did a show last night at the Grammy Museum. Ooh! And, uh, <laughs> but I played a couple of new songs that I've literally never played. And I was just, I was so nervous. You're learning your own material after the record is out. I was trying to make a kind of aggressive punk rock record for the most part. There were some bits where when we were, because I wrote them and like I sort of demoed everything at home and sort of playing everything myself pretty much and programming drums and all this. And then we put it together in the studio. But there was a moment of like, oh my God, I have to sing and play the guitar at the same time (laughs) while while standing up. And like there are, there's definitely a couple of songs that have no breathing space in them. I know. And not just standing up, but also, you know, possibly kind of shaking a leg. You know what I mean? So what number of record is this one that you've just done? That's number, that's number nine. Oh, good for you. 
Have you found as you've gone on that you care more or less about how you're going to play it live? Uh, that's a really good question. It differs, right? Because, so I was going to mention this earlier. I had this, um, there's a band from Canada called Arkells. They're one of those Canadian bands that are just like gigantically, preposterously huge in Canada and not well known out there. They had an incredible album called Morning Report. And what we did a sort of flip. They opened for us everywhere apart from Canada and we opened for them in Canada. And and they opened for us in like sort of fifteen hundred to two thousand cap venues. We opened for them in like hockey arenas, and it was like wow, wow, how amazing! Yeah, quite strange. But they were they were in their sound checks. They were they were working out a song that was on the album that was already out. They were like, oh, we wrote this song and sort of constructed it in the studio, and we've never played it as a band. And I was like, how can this be? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, because I'd never yeah. written a song or, well, I'd never constructed a song in a studio before. I've always, if there's anyone else playing, we've rehearsed and then gone in and put mics around and pressed record. Right. And yeah, and, and the, when they sent that to me, it was this huge eye-opener for me. And since then, I have done that a few times. I think it's good to kick, to kick your comfort zone like that. Totally. Right. And and so, but I, so to go to your question, I guess the thing is, it's like sometimes like, I'll go into certain records. It's like we rehearsed it. It's basically a live recording of a thing. So it's, it, I know how to play it live because that's what it is yes. already. And then other times it's like, it's, but I mean, I, you know, I, I feel confident in the guys I play with these days. So yeah. What, what about you? I would say that I've definitely started disengaging with worrying about it. Sure. Which is problematic because I play solo so much. <laughs> yeah. And so this record's been is a bit of a nightmare. There's like there's like a bunch of songs that I sure. is like it's just bass and a beat or it's like some weird marimba part and I'm like, "Oh my god, how am I going to do this?" Yeah, sure. So I almost have to sort of do remixes for live. Well, you and I both have that thing of having that kind of like sort of central spine of being a solo performer in in what we do. And like I think that's a good discipline in some ways and that like it's I think it was Adam Jurits years ago I read an interview he was sort of saying if you can't play a song on one person on one instrument then what have you got? Yeah, I ultimately? agree with that. But it applies to most things. Death metal less so. Even then though. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in the example you're talking about, which I have done once or twice things, is you end up, you're almost covering your own material. And there's an evolution. And I think that that's really fun for fans. Yeah. You know, it's going to be frustrating for the odd fan where that's their favorite song and they want to hear it exactly how you had it on the record. But sure. on the whole, I think it's great to play stuff differently. Right. And songs evolve. I mean, some of my, I'm sure you have this too, some of my older material, even the stuff that I recorded with my existing band. Listen yeah. back to the recording and you're like, is that how? Uh, yeah. Remember yeah. that? I also really love the evolutionary process as you play on tour, where you start to like really discover great pockets where you kind of expand it a little bit or a part kind of really comes to the fore that wasn't jumping out although it, it can also be quite annoying i find because like you've just finished in the studio and you've just pressed go on the vinyl pressing and it's done and yeah. you're on tour and you play the song live three times and the third time you kind of square that circle or do a little yeah. vocal or, or harmonic or melodic flip that's so much better than what you've just put on the record and you're like <laughs> you're like god damn it but then that's why i think a lot of bands that's the old tour about why people's debut albums are often great is yeah. because you've played them in how do you feel about the clash? How do I feel about the clash? How do you, this is going somewhere relevant. I mean, the, I feel the clash are a seminal ingredient of, of Britain course. and world rock music. You are, you, and of course you are correct. But the question is, okay, let me specify then. How do you feel about the album Sandinista? 
I couldn't speak eloquently upon it. Okay, so tell so this me. Is, this is it. I something I dis- I discovered in when I first started touring America. Probably like Americans hold Joe Strummer in. I I hold Joe Strummer in high regard. I have a tattoo of him on yeah. my arm. I have I I know his family. I've worked for his foundation. Blah blah. blah. But like he's still a guy who was in a band. He was a very yeah. cool guy who was in a very cool band. In America, it's St. Joe Strummer, and they talk about it. They sort of take their hats off when his name gets mentioned. And wow. I was like, huh, that's interesting. But then what I realized, and I'm sure that Josh is listening into this and pulling his hair out, but like to me, the litmus test is Sandinista. So like Sandinista to me is a terrible album. Uh-huh. Uh, and and the whole thing was they made this whole song and dance about how they went to Jamaica to make it, but there was this whole mm-hmm. thing about how it was like uh, in interviews. It's like a triple album, and afterwards Joey was giving interviews, kind of going, "Man, we were still writing the songs while the tape was rolling," and it was like I can tell yeah. this this <laughs> this could have done with like a series. This is basically an extended jam session before they made what would have been a pretty great record. Yeah. But America Americans all adore Sandinista and think it's the single greatest record ever made. Well, this is the other thing that's funny about america where i live now it is that <laughs> people are completely happy to sit and listen to a gig for four hours and i'm like play an hour and a half and i am i am really yeah, happy hit it hit it and cut it yeah I, I always felt like i mean i'm a huge springsteen fan but like i always feel like you can tell that he predates punk rock because if punk rock gave one thing to music it was a reminder that brevity is the soul of wit he played for four hours and i'm like yeah. ah are you selling any tickets for ones where you do two? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know <what> I, mean? <laughs> I remember when he played Glastonbury, like I watched a bit and then I went off and saw like three other bands and then just came back and watched a bit more. The one time I saw him play a four hour show and he opened with, it was, it was kind of incredible. He opened with Incident on 52nd Street, so the piano, that was mm. great. But then he did, um, he did like a 10 minute version of Atlantic City. And it was like, man, that song is two minutes long on the record for good solid reasons yeah you know i love frank turner spitting truths on this podcast it's awesome no i know i've got him in trouble now but it's good no it's good i love it's so refreshing to have honest (laughs) conversation about music rather than of course shelling around stuff it's you know how on earth would great artists make great work if they don't try stuff and they're not always going to get it right oh absolutely and like ultimately i mean i don't know what your feelings on springsteen are but i think he's the greatest songwriter of the 20th century without without contest springsteen's always been really interesting to me because i mean nebraska is gonna be you know my closest to my taste and i remember always being a little bit like a little bit alarmed by how many kind of vehicular metaphors there were in his songs um yeah but the thing that's always really kind of I've found mysterious about Springsteen is I've always found it quite difficult to like latch on to his verses. Like I'm mm. sort of feel like I'm following him down a corridor in the dark and I sort of don't it's not obvious or predictable a lot of the time. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And then he'll like smash you in the face with this chorus. But exactly. He he buys the rights to a complicated verse with a with a Yeah, but I really kind of I feel kind of a little confused by his stuff a lot of the time. But I did I did a cover of uh, Mr. State Trooper, mm. and I I'd it was actually this really cool movie called Rust and Bone, which is about a fighter, and it's Marion Cotillard, and a really great like electronic artist did a remix of it. And I then ended up playing the remix at shows with my band because mm. it was so cool. And then I did an acoustic version. It just, it feels rather sacred playing his material, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. So you're, you're in Topanga Canyon. How long have yeah. you been in the States for? So I moved over in 2015. My dad had passed away and it just, I, I, it, was, it was like I woke up over the course of like three days and was just like, oh my God, I've achieved everything I wanted to achieve and I'm actually not that happy. And, you know, losing a parent is a is a major mortality wake up call. Sure. And uh, it was a real gift, actually. It just re- it made me I realized I'd married the wrong person. I would just got everything wrong. And I was like, my Wikipedia page was like Scottish girl does well. It's <laughs> 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 like. God, that's so dull. But come on, please tell me you you either have or are planning on using that for at least a t-shirt slogan, if not an al- <laughs> at song title, if not an album title. That's an can album just, title. Come can on. That just be, can that just be like every album review ever? Or, well, it's, or it's, your, it's your memoir, Scottish Gardens. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And so at that point, I got divorced, sold everything I owned and moved to America. Wow. I was just like, I really properly need to rip it up and start again. And it was the best thing I ever did. And I thought I wasn't going to make albums for 10 years. I was really done. I was kind of over the monotony of making a record, having the label tell you who the coolest producer and mixer was, using the same people as so-and-so-and-so-and-so, going through all the promotion and marketing. And of course, these things are exciting. I just wasn't finding it exciting because I wasn't in a good place. And so I ended up managing to get onto the Sundance Film Composers Lab. And I went to Northern America, California, and to George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch. It was unbelievable. <laughs> Have you seen that movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once? Uh, no, it's on my list. It's a great film. It's by a, a friend of mine called Dan Kwan. He's half of the Daniels who made that film. But he was making a film at that time called Swiss Army Man, which is one of the most bonkers films you'll ever see. And he was on the director's lab working on that film. So I actually ended up getting paired with him to do some of the early soundtrack. 
and they didn't they used uh, a, 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 another musician for the soundtrack but it was a great experience and so I was just you know I went straight into trying other things and then I was sort of you know going through some personal shit like clearly yeah uh, and I'd done Invisible Empire Crescent Moon which was a very kind of melancholic moody record unlike anything else I'd done and then I just started I was living in California and I just started writing these like Tom Petty-esque air punch like pop anthems <laughs> yeah and I was like this is actually really fun and it's and the world had become a bit dark you know the Trump stuff had started there was a lot of kind of very divisive feeling between people and I was just if I'd written another melancholic folk record I probably wouldn't have put it out but I just felt yeah, like so. this record is actually going to be a positive thing in the world. It feels, it feels good. It feels a, it's about coming through your challenges better for them. Yeah, amazing. And that was the beginning of the trilogy. That was, I was like, okay, well, this is the soul part. And the trilogy came about because I was just so bored of that roller coaster of putting a record out. It's gone in a flash. You've put so much into it. And then you're suddenly right back down at the, at the bottom and you've got to work yourself all the way back up for the next record. And it's six months later and it's a comeback. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> I've literally gone to the toilet. I know what you mean. That well, so that to change horses just ever so slightly. I don't know if you have ever had this. It's a thing that I struggle with sometimes. Is like, should I go away for a bit? Because yeah. like to to some extent, like my success, such as it is in music, has been a, a fruit of kind of like just relentless persistence. Yes, that's I mean? exactly the same as me. We're very and, similar in that way. Yeah, and just touring and touring and touring and refusing to go away. Constant. Yeah, and and it's almost like you feel like you're you're like you're like pulling a motor or whatever and it's like yeah. has it fired if i let go will it still go also being a solo artist there's there's challenges that we that we share where um you know people might not know that if if we don't tour all the time we lose our band and crew because yeah. they've got to get work elsewhere and you can't afford to keep them on retainer all the time. So totally, you know the first 15 years of my touring was just like I, I, if i if i stop I lose everybody. I would say I'm in the same shoes. Like the angle I would put it at these days to me, because like some of the guys in my band have been with since 2006. Wow. So, um, and and in fact, that we have a new drummer as of two years ago. But other than that, everyone's been around since yeah. 2006. And some of my crew have been around since 2008 and longer. And it's more the case that like I, it's difficult. Do I do I owe them a living? I mean, maybe yeah. maybe not, but at the same time, I know that all of them aren't taking any other jobs because yeah. there's a sort of expectation that I will tour it. Well, on. I I actually have kind of deliberately not done that because I just didn't, I couldn't really handle the responsibility of it. Sure, and also I've got a slightly odd kind of slant to what I do which I, I'm very now like it's one of my favorite things is that I make a completely different record every time I make a record so I did have the same band for like six years or something and then I made this record called Tiger Suit and it was like a electronic dance folk record made in Berlin and my cool acoustic band just didn't really fit that vibe yeah, sure. but it did teach me that that for for what I do, where I want to explore different things every record, that it was actually very refreshing, and I and actually gave me a chance to learn from other people playing with other people too. 
One of the support bands we had was a band that I'm obsessed with, who I'm now going to shout out, um, uh, which is a band called Truck Stop Honeymoon. They're a husband and wife. Mike and Katie are from New Orleans, and they now live in rural Wales, and I'm not entirely sure why. But they, um, they've been wow. on tour for, for a long time. They've raised four kids on tour, and they're a bluegrass duo, kind of country Old, but like proper country songs. That's like, amazing. And and they're just beautiful songwriters. But they also have their own studio now out near Aberystwyth. And like uh, Katie plays upright bass and piano and Mike plays banjo and guitar and, and engineers and is like a, just one of those musicians that you're just like, yeah. So Mike and Katie, this band, like they, they have this studio set up and I'm like, what if I just took a bunch of songs to them and didn't go oh, with my wow. regular guys? And actually record it and with just, them. Yeah, and, and it rains it with them as well. Do yeah, you know what I mean? that's a great out. idea. How exciting. I think one day, but at the same time, I, I've just got a new drummer in my band and it's completely reinvigorated because check this out. He's, yeah. 30, he's 30. The oh bastard. The, oh the bastard. He could, he could actually play a four-hour gig. He 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 can have he can like have a drink when there's not a day off the next day and then not die. <laughs> While he's asleep on the tour bus, we all take it in turns to do dialysis with him to get his clean, <laughs> fresh, young blood into our veins. It's great when someone brings energy like that into it. Totally. It's awesome. But it's part of what you were saying about you have to change up, you have to keep on your toes or whatever, and, and that's my current version of that. So I want to ask you a question. I've got this idea for a show that I would like to make and maybe you could be my first guest on my show okay. and my show I've not got a name for it yet <laughs> I want to speak to fellow musicians who've got a side passion right that they love and talk to them about that instead of their music so what would yours be well I don't know whether this qualifies for your thing but I am I am Part of the reason I made a history album is because I'm so, so boringly obsessed with history. Mm. It was a little bit like, at least this is an opportunity for me to stop boring my wife to death for like a little while and direct this in a way that's sort of outward facing and isn't just, because there's a fair degree of kind of like typical male kind of bravado nerdery going on and like, well, I know absolutely in, everything. In, in the knowing of it. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, exactly. But like, I particularly like the history of Central Eastern Europe is a thing that I studied at university and it's a thing that I've kept up with. Basically, I mean, Germany to Russia and everywhere in between, but like particularly... I did my I did a university dissertation on like Bulgarian foreign policy and stuff like this mm, and like wow. and and um in the 1930s it not much happened um but, <laughs> but uh, I, I I got a distinction It was a lazy out. choice for your no, set, Well no sets out I got a distinction in my in my dissertation at university because I found and wrote my dissertation on the papers of a British uh, foreign policy committee that, and the papers had never been opened before and they'd never been studied and it was all to do with tobacco and Bulgaria and wow. foreign policy rivalry with the Nazis because essentially Bulgaria's entire export economy was tobacco and in 1935 the Germans bought all of it wow. and the British noticed and went hold on a minute that means if there's a war they'll be on their side yeah. and maybe we should do something about that and there's all this stuff about Prior to World War One, the British used to smoke Balkan tobacco, but because of the blockades, we tend to switch to American tobacco and have never switched back. Wow, wow, wow. Interesting. So there were all these discussions about could it, would it be possible to get the British public back to smoking granddad's tobacco, whatever it might be, Yeah. and blah, 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 blah. But essentially, the reason no one had ever studied this committee before is because nothing came of it. Like they had, they had like thirty meetings over a four-year period, and then the war broke out, and that was the end of it. 
So how does it manifest itself? Is this all just reading? It is mostly reading, but it's also like I had a wonderful thing. The first time I went to Budapest, I was able to navigate around the city without a map. Because oh, that's amazing. I knew, and ditto Belgrade, actually, because um, particularly Serbian history, I've read a lot of. And yeah. it's kind of, and it's fun. You know, you can you find yourself in a bar and yeah. you can have a real conversation with a, with a stranger about it, you know. It completely broadsided that you know everything. I'm trying to think of the diplomatic way of saying what I'm about to say, but in the... I'm now clean of chemicals in my life, but at a certain point yeah. in my life when I wasn't in London, quite a lot of the people who might sell such things um, are Albanian. And quite often I found myself trying to discuss Albanian history with somebody <laughs> who was trying to sell me drugs and was just like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> the only time I've been to Budapest was that I was sent there by my American label to make a second music video for Suddenly I See. Right. Because they wanted a different video from the British video. And so we went to Budapest with this amazing director called Patrick Daughters, who'd done a lot of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah stuff. And I just adored him. And he wanted to make this video where I lived somewhere really depressing. And every time I saw stuff, it reminded me of what it might be like to be in a circus. So we ended up doing this really depressing, like building a housing estate stuff. And then we did a bunch of filming with a Russian circus wow. in Budapest. But it was this really famous, like very dilapidated housing complex in Budapest, which looks terrifying. It's just mm. these really big, kind of half abandoned concrete building. So, so communist era, presumably. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And then we were, you know, I went, I'd never been on a trapeze and I was like, like swinging around on a trapeze <laughs> in a leotard <laughs> with these Russians. And at the end, like the, it was a dad, and it was a dad like flinging his children around, and I had to sit on his shoulder at the end, like pretending to wave to the crowd. And the guy was reeking of booze, and I was just like, "You are flinging your children around at like eighty feet." And then we sent it to the American label, and went, "Well, now the housing complex is too depressing. We don't want to use it." Never came out. Blimey! I loved it. I went through a long period of time with music videos of of like of them essentially involving me suffering in a, usually, in, a, in, in a usually quite a concentrated way to the point where it was just like, this surely can't at this point be a coincidence. Like, yeah. and, and, and in fairness, quite a few of them were my idea, but like I did a music video where I played 24 shows in 24 hours, um, and which was an idiotic oh idea. Oh my God. Yeah, and don't, don't you, do that. Don't you also number all of your shows? I do, I do, I do. So what are you um, at now? 2,703. Wow. But I, I only know that because I said it on stage on Friday. I'm so um, envious that you've done that. I would have loved to have counted it, but I wouldn't have a clue. But this is it. Is It's like my old band uh, that I was in before I was solo, our drama counted our shows and, well, and kept a list in a notebook. And I was like, you're weird. Why are you doing that? Mm -hmm. And then we broke up and I went, oh, actually, I'm really glad you did that because yeah. even though we were only banned for four years, it was like, I don't really remember what we did in 2001. So, and then also my first two and a half, three years, I toured on my own. I was on the train and I had a guitar and a rucksack. And so there's no one to even bounce the tour stories off. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like it. Yeah, for sure. And, and actually it's so hard. Like, I, I wonder, I think it may have done some slightly weird things to my psyche, like having no kind of like frame of reference for this hugely formative chunk of my life and seeing a completely new set of people every day yeah. for two and a half years made me slightly... It's like, definitely... I, I love that Neil Young lyric in On the Beach. 
and he mm. goes, I need a crowd of people, but I can't face them day by day. Oh. I just think it's just such a brilliant lyric. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so let me throw one your way, which I was thinking about just the other day. I have a friend called Tim. Uh, he's called Tim Barry. And Tim Barry was a singer in a punk band called The Vale, who were a mm. huge, in, for me and indeed the, the underground punk scene in the 90s. And he was one of the first people to start doing folky acoustic records from that scene, which was kind of inspirational for me and then we became touring friends and oh, I love and, that. and he's you know he's one of my I, I say to people as a joke when I grow up I want to be Tim Barry but I'm not mm. really kidding and he's 15 years older than me but like anyway anyway this is going somewhere he has a song called on and on about touring which honestly get some tissues and brace yourself for this touring <laughs> person the opening lines he says how many days can you stay away before someone knows that you're gone and how long can you stay in one place before you miss moving on and it's just like oh, oh like, god! And then and it gets worse from there. It's all spinning wheels and wow, cracked windshields amazing. and white lines and sage, open mouths, empty ears, and years that pass like days. And it's just like oh, and then I, I think about you know weddings I missed, funerals I've oh missed, god. you know, yeah, just birthdays. My dad died while I was on tour. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I I was actually really nearby. They, my, my folks were in Bath and I was like camping at a festival in the Southwest. So I was actually really close and I was with my brother, funnily enough. And mm. But it's, I just think that all people who work in the music industry who aren't musicians should have to go on tour for a week. Oh my God, yes, please. I mean, the amount of times I want to buy someone a fucking map. Do you know what I mean? And it's just like, you have no idea. First of all, you can't shit on the bus. So have a think about that. <laughs> when are you going to have a shit? Yeah. You're going to have to plan it, mate. You're going to have to think about it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And if you need the bus to stop, everybody knows you're going for a shit. <laughs> and it's just, you know, of course there is glamour to touring. There is there is sheen <laughs> to playing gigs and, and travelling the world and, and being a rock star. But um, Jesus Christ, there's there's a lot of grimness to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. But then, I mean, it's a funny thing because, like, the older I get, the more I feel like my tribe, to the extent that I have one, is touring people regardless of where yeah. they may have started in life. And you just kind of smell your own, you know? And it's like... <laughs> and, and, but, I mean, figuratively and literally, but so... I'm just thinking about how fragrant tour buses can get when you said... That. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I did an all-girl band for my tour for Wax, and my God, my tour bus smelt so good. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. One of the weirdly most emotional moments of the lockdown pandemic couple of years for me was, do you know the Wild Hearts, the band, yeah. the Wild Hearts? Yeah. Oh, yeah, so they're old friends of mine, and, and I yeah. grew up listening to them, and I had oh, that great. poster on my wall and all this. But they were doing a live stream thing back when everyone was doing that. And they asked me to go and like be sort of the compare and the interviewer for it. And I was like, yeah, cool, whatever. And it was nice. an excuse to leave the house and all this kind of thing. And it was just, it was before home testing. I remember that because we showed up and the nurses did tests on us, yeah. which was the first time I'd ever been tested. Um, uh, and then after that, we could do whatever we wanted. We could hug yeah. each other and take our masks off. And it was that was all super new at the time. But yeah. the thing was, I got through the testing bit, and I know the Wild Hearts guys really well, but I know their crew as well, and they're proper, like, Rock City road dog types. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah. And, like, and I saw them, and I nearly burst into tears because it was like mm. part of me had thought that people like 
you, I'd almost made you up. Do you know what I mean? It was like, but you're still alive and you're still there. It's a whole kind of parallel reality. It's a community. It's it's a community that doesn't exist in a specific static place. The thing that's so lovely about it is there's just a very collective understanding within that of 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 how life is and you know how you how you are with each other and uh, you know it's as long as it's as it's good folks across the board it's incredibly supportive and yeah um well and like catering at the right kind of festival can be a wonderful thing because you're just surrounded by your people and you know all these different people and it's like even the people you don't know it's like that guy's got a lanyard and a radio like when you get asked that question what advice would you give to a new musician it's like respect your caterers <laughs> <laughs> they are working way harder than you are yeah yeah, yeah absolutely is our advice even relevant now to music now you know that i'm gonna i'm gonna thump the table like an old man hold on have i got a walking stick around here um uh, d- yes i mean I, and i'm not talking about I'm not talking about writing songs and playing. No, no, I know, I know what you're talking about. I'm know talking what you mean. about how, how, what advice would we give them to like get themselves out there? Well, but this is it. So I had this huge moment in my life when I, like everybody, I think, or to, maybe not everybody, but like I sort of had this idea of popular music beginning in 1956 with Elvis. And then, oh, yeah, there was also the blues. And there's also this thing called country. And I don't really know what that is. And so on and so forth. And then I got super into the history of music hall and vaudeville and the circus and all this kind of thing. And it's like I read P.T. Barnum's tour diaries from the 1860s which has his tour diary from touring like the American Midwest in the 1860s. And you wouldn't fucking believe how real it is. He's like catering sucks in Ohio or whatever. And you're just like, (gasps) (laughs) Like, it was the same then. (laughs) It hasn't changed in 160 years or whatever. But you know, that like there is this and like musical, I'm obsessed with musical, you know, it's this entire century of performers who've been forgotten because they predate uh recording technology yeah you know but yeah, they were sure. they were the biggest stars of their day and um it's the reason that Chaz and Dave were arguably my favorite band of all time is that they were they were the living link to music yeah. hall. I'm not yeah. kidding look I've got my Chaz and Dave tattoo right That's there amazing. it's got a rabbit um but yeah so the, and it's you know but my point in saying all this being that like the business of traveling around and entertaining a crowd at the end of their working week is a thing that goes way back like mm. way back. It's an old art and it's been going for a long time and it's not going anywhere. I love that you and I have the honour of being part of that lineage. Yeah, it's completely ephemeral. Fuck live records. It's, it was there. It was in that room that night. If you weren't there, then whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also like it's it's simultaneously the biggest and the smallest thing in the world. Yeah. You know, like you, you are creating a world on a stage in front of a bunch of people who you don't know who've yeah. paid their hard-earned money. But at the same time, you're telling a bunch of shitty gags or whatever. No, but the thing, the thing that always amazes me about that energy transaction of being in a room is... I have been to shows that have transformed me to the point where I've walked out of that show thinking something was possible that I didn't think was it, within myself. I can do so I can do more than I thought I could do. I can be more than I thought I could be. This thing is going to be okay. This thing that I thought was going to be really shit is going to be okay. What I think I'm gonna do this something I've always wanted to do and I've not done it. Yeah, yeah. These it's like it 
it's just this amazing alchemy that can, if you go to a great show, it can just open your heart up in a, in a really safe environment to dream. Absolutely. Completely. I remember reading about Radiohead talking about maybe not touring anymore for environmental reasons. And I thought, God, please don't stop touring. Because first of all, I mean, I'm a huge Radiohead fan, but I was like, everybody needs you. <laughs> everybody who likes <laughs> your music <laughs> yeah, 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 really sure. fucking needs help. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, um, but these you know, they're real it's they're religious experiences. They're spiritual gatherings when it's a band like that and it's that size. And 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 you know, Radiohead, I think, are just such a unique band in that they do just do absolutely what the fuck they want. And and that's why they're so popular. And very few bands I feel like are actually really genuinely able to do that. I was just so glad that they didn't stop touring because I thought you're it's worth the footprint of carbon that you leave to give people that energy to feel that they can be a force for good in the world thanks for listening to the talk house podcast and thanks to Katie Tunstall and Frank Turner for chatting if you liked what you heard please follow us on your favorite platform and don't forget to check out all the other great podcasts in our network and written pieces at talkhouse.com this episode was produced by Myron Kaplan and the Talkhouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.